New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. For the past three decades, British biologist Rupert Sheldrake has been asking questions that most scientists either haven't thought of asking or are discouraged from asking by the unwritten codes that often prevail in our scientific and academic institutions. Educated at Cambridge and Harvard, Dr. Sheldrake is the author of more than 80 scientific papers and 10 books, including his groundbreaking A New Science of Life, The Rebirth of Nature, Seven Experiments That Could Change the World, and his best-selling investigation into animal telepathy, dogs that know when their owners are coming home. Dr. Sheldrake is perhaps best known for his morphic field theory, which takes a fresh look at memory, habit, instinct, and heredity, as well as phenomena such as telepathy, which are unexplained in terms of current physics. This edition of New Dimensions features a talk given by Dr. Sheldrake in late 2012 to announce the American release of his new book, Science Set Free. In this presentation, sponsored by the California Institute of Integral Studies in San Francisco, Sheldrake turns some of the constricting dogmas and assumptions of modern science into open questions that can themselves be tested scientifically rather than being accepted on faith alone. Join us for the next hour as we hear Dr. Rupert Sheldrake introduce Science Set Free. My name is Dan Drayson. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Well, thank you so much. This book, Science Set Free, is called The Science Delusion in England. And what science is being set free from, I hope, is the science delusion. The science delusion is the belief that science already understands the nature of reality in principle, leaving only the details to be filled in. That, I think, is a profoundly mistaken view and that there's a conflict within science which is actually constricting science from what it should be doing. Um, I see science as a means of exploring reality. But there's another side of science, which is science as a worldview or a dogmatic belief system. Now, most people are incredulous when I suggest that science is a dogmatic belief system because they say, well, surely science is the one thing that enables us to go beyond dogmatic beliefs. It's the, the one thing that pays full attention to evidence and free inquiry and open-minded thinking. That's an ideal of science, and it's an ideal that I share, but it's not one that's usually put into practice. Within the sciences, there's a very strongly defined 
set of beliefs, which most scientists don't even realize are beliefs. They think other people have beliefs, Christians, Buddhists, Muslims, and so on, but they don't have beliefs, they know the truth. And these beliefs are taken to be such established truths that they're not even discussed. And most people outside the scientific world assume they must be true because science is so successful and has such huge prestige as a result of it. What I do in this book, Science Set Free, is take the 10 most important dogmas of modern science and I turn them into questions, treating them as hypotheses that can be tested rather than assumptions you can't challenge. The 10 dogmas are as follows. First, the belief that the whole world is mechanical or machine-like. The universe is a machine, animals are machines, plants are machines, humans are machines, lumbering robots in Richard Dawkins' evocative phrase. Now that's the first and the most central assumption. But it's not a proof to many places of decimals tested by experiment, it's just a metaphor. You can't prove a metaphor, it's useful in certain respects but not in others. And my view is that nature is much better thought of as organic, as the universe is like a developing organism. Well, that's the first assumption or dogma. The second is that matter is unconscious. The universe is made up of atoms, molecules, stars, galaxies, crystals, all of which are completely unconscious. Everything in nature is unconscious, except human brains and uh, maybe the brains of a number of other higher animals or for the liberal materialists, maybe uh, going down as far as insects or worms. But nevertheless, uh, matter itself is intrinsically unconscious. Then there's the assumption that the laws of nature are fixed. The laws of nature are the same today as they were at the moment of the Big Bang, and they'll be the same forever. And as well as the laws being fixed, the constants are fixed. The gravitational constant, the speed of light, and so on, have always been the same. The next assumption is that the total amount of matter and energy is always the same, the principle of conservation of matter and energy. Next, that nature is purposeless and the entire evolutionary process has no purpose or direction. Next, biological inheritance is material. Everything that organisms inherit is inherited materially, mainly as DNA or now there's added complexity through epigenetic modifications of the DNA uh, or through cytoplasmic inheritance. But essentially, uh, most people treat the word hereditary as if it's synonymous with genetic. Assumption number seven is that memories are stored as material traces inside the brain. Dogma eight, the mind is inside the head. Mental activity is brain activity. It's all inside your head. Dogma 9 follows from number 8, psychic phenomena are illusory. Things like telepathy may appear to exist. Lots of people may believe they've had telepathic experiences, but that's because they're not smart enough to realize it's just coincidence or must have some other perfectly normal explanation. It's an illusion. And dogma 10, mechanistic medicine is the only kind that really works. Alternative and complementary therapies may appear to work, but that's because people would have got better anyway, or it's just the placebo effect. Well, those are the 10 beliefs which underlie the modern worldview. Within science, some of them are questioned by some scientists in some areas of science, and as I hope to show, 
all of them really have been superseded by advances in science itself. But nevertheless, these are the beliefs that most people pick up during the course of their scientific education, or indeed in the course of any kind of education, because almost all modern people have been brought up to have a respect for science and to believe it must be true. So these are the default assumptions of most educated people. Now, when we turn them into questions, things look very different. First of all, within science, you're not meant to question them. If you question them, you break taboos. And there's all sorts of sanctions against breaking taboos. I don't have time this evening to go into all ten delusions, but I'll just deal with two or three of them. I'll start with the total amount of matter and energy is always the same, since the moment of the Big Bang, when all the matter and energy in the universe suddenly appeared. As my friend Terence McKenna used to say, modern science is based on the principle, give us one free miracle and we'll explain the rest. <laughs> and, and, and the one free miracle is the appearance of all the matter and energy in the universe and all the laws that govern it from nothing in a single instant. Uh, as Terence used to say, that's the limit case of credulity. If you can swallow that, you can swallow anything. Um, this is the assumption that I myself questioned last. I only really questioned it two or three years ago. I'd questioned all the others during the course of my scientific career, but not that one. I thought this is the one that's most certain, that's most unquestionable. And it's the one that I'd believed longest, because I learned it in elementary physics lessons. I thought, though, I should include it in this book because I also thought it would be good to find at least one of the dogmas of science was true. I didn't want to seem one-sided by finding all ten uh, were false. I hoped that this one would turn out to be true. I had nothing against it to start with. Um, but the more I looked into it, the more dodgy it seemed, until I now see it as a house of cards built on foundations of sand, to combine metaphors. First of all, What's the history? Is this something people have established by detailed experiments measuring things with incredible accuracy to many places of decimals? No. This dogma is based on philosophical and theological assumptions that have been around for centuries, even millennia. They were codified in the 19th century, uh, in the 1850s, in fact, in the laws of thermodynamics and in the principle of conservation of matter and energy, and appear to be certain truths. But while most of us may pay a great deal of reverence to these principles, physicists themselves have felt less bound by them. In the 1980s, it became clear that galaxies were attracting each other much more than they ought to. If you add up all the matter in the stars, make a generous allowance for black holes and planets and gas clouds, it also turned out that stars within galaxies were being attracted much more than they should have been, according to the amount of matter in the galaxies. So something was wrong with this model. So how could physicists fix it? Well, simple. They could increase the amount of gravity by just adding in more matter to their equations, add in exactly the right amount to make the equations balance. And uh, what is this matter they've added in? Well, it's dark matter. We don't know what it is, but we know it must be there because it makes the equations balance. <laughs> To this day, nobody knows what dark matter is. Its nature is literally obscure. And there's five times more of it than there is of regular matter. Now, is dark matter conserved? 
Is the total amount always the same? Can it be converted to regular matter? So could regular matter just appear from nowhere or disappear into dark matter? Nobody knows, because nobody knows what dark matter is, how it works, or what it does. But this caused a new problem, because suddenly there's all this extra matter in the universe, which meant the whole universe was more massive than anyone had previously supposed. And now what about the expansion of the universe? The universe is expanding, but it's also being pulled back by gravitation, the gravitation of everything within the universe. So now there's a lot more matter in the universe. It ought to be causing the universe to slow down in its expansion and finally stop expanding and then begin to contract. In the 1990s, that's what most cosmologists thought, that the universe was going to slow down, then contract, until it all ended in tears, in the reverse of the Big Bang, known in the trade as the Big Crunch. Uh, everything would finally implode into a black hole. But around 1998, it turned out that, from observation of distant galaxies, that far from slowing down, uh, the expansion of the universe was speeding up. Things were expanding faster and faster. Now, how could you explain that? Simple. There must be a new kind of energy in the universe that's pushing everything apart. Dark energy. And um, just add in the right amount that you need to make the equations balance and fit the observations, and you fix the problem. But it causes yet another problem for physics, because it turns out the amount of dark energy is increasing. As the universe expands, you get more dark energy. The universe is now a perpetual motion machine. We're listening to Dr. Rupert Sheldrake introducing his book, Science Set Free. If you'd like more information about Dr. Sheldrake, his work, and his books, you can find it at www.sheldrake.org. That's S-H-E-L-D-R-A-K-E dot org. Or you can get there via the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Dan Drayson, and you're listening to New Dimensions. Once again, here's Dr. Rupert Sheldrake introducing his book, Science Set Free. Roughly speaking, today the current estimate is that just over 96% of the universe consists of dark matter and dark energy. Less than 4% consists of the kind of matter and energy you learned about at school and to which these laws of conservation of matter and energy are supposed to apply. What if dark energy can be converted into regular energy? What if regular energy can be converted into dark energy? Is that possible? Nobody knows. This room is full of dark matter and dark energy. We've no idea how they might be interacting with processes going on in our physical world. Meanwhile, um, 
In quantum theory, uh, an essential part of it is the idea that the world is filled with uh, another kind of energy, the zero-point energy or quantum vacuum field energy. The quantum vacuum is not a vacuum, it's a plenum. It's full of energy. But what if we could tap it? Could we tap any of these mysterious forms of energy in the universe? Well, the usual assumption is, of course not, because the conservation of matter and energy forbids all these kinds of perpetual motion machine ideas. But the world is full of inventors working in garages and sheds who claim to have above-unity devices, free energy devices. Go on the online and search for above-unity devices and you'll find a vast array of claims out there. I've seen one of them in England. A friend of mine is in a company that has developed one of these devices. It does indeed seem to give out twice as much energy as you put in. It's been tested in a couple of universities who've written reports, couldn't find anything wrong with it but didn't want their reports to be published because it would discredit their university and their physics department because this is such a taboo area. So do any of these devices work? If they did, they could provide boundless amounts of energy that would completely transform the world economy and ecology and change the way we think about the future. Do they work or don't they? Because they defy this dogma, they're kept in the fringe areas of science, they're in a realm of parascience or fringe science. What could we do about it? If we take the view that perhaps some of these forms of energy really exist and can be tapped, how would you find out? Well, my suggestion is a competition, a million dollar prize. People could submit their various claims, their devices, have them tested by engineers and physicists who would not be trying to debunk them, but give an honest appraisal of whether this is working as it seems to. Some have already been tested and do seem to work as their claim to. If anyone wins this prize, I think it would change the climate because people would then invest in these things and things would happen right now. They have small investors, but as soon as they go to the big investors, like the big energy companies, um, they then call up their physics advisors, and you know, within five minutes, the guy will say, you know, these people are claiming it's above unity. That's impossible. This is just another perpetual motion machine crank. Forget it. The prejudice is so great that it's very hard for them to get investment. If anyone won this prize, I think the climate would completely change. And if nobody won it, because if none of them really work, the conventional people would have the, the sweet delight of saying, I told you so. <laughs> it turns out that the principle of conservation of matter and energy when applied to living organisms is equally dodgy. And this was one of the most shocking discoveries for me. I'm a biologist and I'd always taken for granted that living organisms follow the law of conservation of matter and energy. When I looked into the history, I found that uh, it wasn't at all clear what was going on. In the early 19th century, particularly in Germany, many biologists thought that living organisms had another kind of energy over and above the regular kind. They called it vital energy or life force. In the 1850s, Hermann von Helmholtz, better known as a physicist, made it his mission to prove that living organisms were nothing but machines. He tried to prove it by doing experiments with frogs' legs, making them twitch by electrical stimulation and measuring the heat given out to try and show they followed normal laws of heat and work. He couldn't get any accurate results, so he gave up an empirical test and stuck to a theoretical argument. 
living organisms and machines, therefore they obey the normal laws of physics and chemistry and conservation of matter and energy, therefore living organisms and machines. It was a circular argument. He assumed what he set out to prove, and after that it was taken as a certain fact in biology. It wasn't until 1899 that anyone tried to test this experimentally with human beings, and there was a, one test with a dog before that. In the United States, Atwater and Benedict, who were two of the founders of nutrition science in America, uh, had people in calorimeters, insulated boxes. They'd live in them for several weeks. All the gases going in and out were measured, the urine, the feces, the food, the energy, and so on. And they did this to establish, or as they put it, demonstrate that humans were nothing but machines obeying the regular laws of physics. Their first results turned out to be wrong, so they simply changed the correction values for the nutritive values of the foods uh, so they could get the right answer. And they, they came up with a result in agreement with the theory uh, to an accuracy of 99.9%. Everyone heaved a sigh of relief. This was now proved. It was the foundation of nutrition science. It was a firm foundation for biology. People wrote articles saying it was the last nail in the coffin of vitalism and so forth. It wasn't until the 1970s that this work was re-examined by an American nutritionist called Paul Webb, working in the Midwest. He redid their experiments and found huge discrepancies. He found that people who were obese and doing very little exercise put out about 25% less energy than they ought to have done, whereas people who were not eating and doing a lot of exercise somehow had excess to 25% more energy than they should have done. He then looked back at the classical results of Atwater and Benedict. They'd found similar discrepancies, but they'd carefully got the right number of people below the average and, and the right number above the average, so they cancelled out to give this perfect expected result. When Webb published his results showing these massive discrepancies, instead of it causing uh, consternation in the world of nutrition science, it was just ignored. When people in other cultures, like Hindus, talk of prana, or uh, Chinese or Japanese talk of qi or ki energy, this is treated as purely metaphorical. It can't be real, because we know that uh, living organisms obey the normal laws of ordinary energy. But nutrition science is full of anomalies. All over the world, uh, in India, in medieval Europe, in China, and the United States, there are people who claim to be able to live without food. These breatharians, as they're now called, uh, have a long ancestry in many parts of the world. Some have been tested and found to be fraudulent. Some have been tested by scientists over the centuries, including quite recently in India, and found uh, to be mysteriously able to live in apparent defiance of the normal laws of energy. Now, the normal assumption is these people are complete frauds. Anyone who investigates them must be a flaky scientist. Any results that don't debunk these people must be fraudulent or flawed, and the issue's closed. But what if it isn't closed? If I were a nutrition scientist, this would seem to me one of the most interesting questions that we could possibly ask. Is there some other form of energy? The one certain finding in nutrition science in the last 20 years is the important effects of caloric restriction. Organisms that have fed uh, half the normal calories, generally speaking, live uh, much longer than those who get the normal diet. And this applies to people, mice, yeast, uh, all sorts of organisms seem to follow this principle. Something may be going on with 
drawing in forms of energy, maybe from the quantum vacuum field, that mean that the standard assumptions of nutrition science are simply false. It also has an, a bearing on medicine because many medical systems from other cultures are based on forms of energy ours isn't. Well, that's one set of assumptions. The total amount of matter and energy is always the same, the dogmatic assumption. When you look at it, as you see in both in physics and biology, the picture that emerges is not one of total certainty and 100% success. It's one of dogmatic beliefs and extraordinary anomalies, including 96% of the universe not being regular matter and energy, um, and discrepant experimental results. Now, if we look at some of these other assumptions, we find similar anomalies. Take the idea that the laws and constants of nature are fixed. Now, this is something I've been challenging for a long time. The idea of morphic resonance, which gives a kind of memory in nature, uh, suggests that the so-called laws of nature are more like habits. And I'm not going to speak about that now because I'm not here particularly to push my own theories, um, uh, but to open up the much bigger question in science. So instead of looking at the laws of nature, I'll look at the constants. Now, are the constants fixed? Is the gravitational constant or the speed of light, for example, completely fixed? Well, you might assume they must be. Surely uh, this is something that's well known. But if you look at the data, a very different picture emerges. I started by going back through handbooks of physics, and in doing this I discovered that the speed of light dropped by 20 kilometers per second between 1928 and 1945 all over the world, and then it went up again to somewhere near its pre-1928 value. And the values that people found in labs all around the world were very accurate ones according to their own data. They had very small error bars. Um, they, they, they were up there with little tiny error bars, then they went down here with tiny error bars, then they went up there. It wasn't as if there was a huge spread of error that encompassed this 20 kilometers per second drop. No, something else seemed to be happening. I went to talk about this to the head of the metrology section. Metrology is the science which measures the constants at the British National Physical Laboratory. Dr. Brian Petley. And so I said to him, now what do you make of this drop in the speed of light between 1928 and 1945? And then it went up again. He said, oh dear, he said, you've uncovered one of the most embarrassing episodes in the history of our science. <laughs> and, and I said, well, it needn't be embarrassing. I said, what if the speed of light really dropped? Um, wouldn't that tell us something really exciting and interesting about the universe? He said, well, it couldn't have really dropped. And I said, why not? He said, because it's a constant. <laughs> so then I said, well, well, then how do you explain this discrepancy, this drop, with people getting these small errors? I said, the only thing I can think of is that people, suddenly the fashion changed and people started adjusting their results, fudging them to get what they thought was the expected value. He said, oh, we don't like to use the word fudging. And I said, what word do you prefer? And he said, we prefer to call it intellectual phase locking. And, uh, so I said, you mean that all around the world people intellectually phase locked on this new value, discarded discrepant values, corrected them till they got that right value, and, and, and then published values that agreed with what they thought everyone else was getting. He said, well, more or less. And I said, well, then when it went up again, um, then the same thing happened. He said, yes, more or less. 
I said, well, could it happen again? He said, no, thank goodness it can't happen anymore. <laughs> and I said, why not? He said, we fixed the speed of light by definition in 1972. And I said, you mean you just defined it by a kind of fiat? And he said, yes. And, uh, and I said, but what if it really changes? He said, we'd never know. So that's the state of play in the most fundamental of all constants in modern physics. We're listening to Dr. Rupert Sheldrake introducing his book, Science Set Free. If you'd like more information about Dr. Sheldrake, his work, and his books, you can find it at www.sheldrake.org. That's S-H-E-L-D-R-A-K-E dot org. Or you can get there via the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Dan Drayson, and you're listening to New Dimensions. Once again, here's Dr. Rupert Sheldrake introducing his book, Science Set Free, at a talk in San Francisco in late 2012, sponsored by the California Institute of Integral Studies. With the most ancient of constants in physics, Newton's universal gravitational constant, big G, as it's known in the trade, it's written with a capital G. The, the values of big G have been fluctuating wildly. Even in the last 10 years, it's varied by more than 1.3%. Most people assume these things are accurate to many places of decimals, but not so. Big G varies embarrassingly. And how they actually fix the value of G is they get different labs around the world measure it. They take an average of their measurements, discarding ones that seem to be too far off on the grounds they must be errors. Then the different labs submit them to the International Committee on Metrology. They then discard any values from labs where they think the lab must have got it wrong because it doesn't agree with the others, average the remaining ones, and come up with what's called the best value of G. When I left Dr. Petley's office, he said, oh, by the way, you might like to see this. He says, just come from the press. And he leant down beneath his desk. There was a cardboard box full of pamphlets. He pulled one out and gave it to me. He said, the latest values of the physical constants. Um, so, uh, so, some scientists, well, some philosophers, Alfred North Whitehead, for example, who was a mathematician as well as a philosopher, had a theory of relativity that differed from Einstein's. And his differed in that it predicted that the measurements of big G would vary from time to time as measured on Earth. And so there is a reason for thinking they might vary. They might also vary if there really is dark matter and if it's in clouds of uneven density, if the Earth passes through them in its orbit around the Sun, or if the Earth in different parts of its orbit is um, affected differently by dark matter out there in the galaxy, it could affect these measurements. So the question is, do these measurements vary similarly all around the world? In 1994, in my book, Seven Experiments That Could Change the World, I tried to encourage metrologists to look at the raw data and see, are they all the values of G all up, at, say, in June and down in July or down in December? Do they vary together? Is there a cyclical variation in these around the world? 
They refused to do it because they said, G is constant, this is a meaningless question. But the data are there, it wouldn't cost very much to do this. It's terribly frustrating that it hasn't been done. I think if it was done, we might find meaningful variations in G which could actually be analysed and give rise to new science. Uh, the day may come when we open scientific journals like Nature every week and there might be a page like the stock market reports you know, on the constants. <laughs> this week G held constant, C was up a little bit, the fine structure constant was down, uh, there's been a fall in the charge on the electron. Uh, 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 it might be that uh, there's a quality of time which uh, might because of different balances in the strength of the different constants. It would mean different things could happen at different times. All these things are possible, but we'll never find out if we have the dogmatic assumption they're constant and all the variations are ironed out. So there's the assumption that the constants of nature are fixed. It's nothing but an assumption. Some physicists have proposed they might actually vary over time. But for the most part, this is, question is not entertained within science. But there's no reason it shouldn't be, and it's not as if science as we know it will collapse. It would get more interesting, and we might find out something really new. Now, I'll take another of these assumptions now, um, that memories are stored inside the brain. Now, this is something that not just scientists take for granted, but most people take for granted. If you just ask the average person you meet on the street, where are memories? They'd say, oh, in your head. It's just a standard assumption of our whole culture. Now, where's the evidence that memories are in our head? Well, many people would say you don't need any evidence. It's obvious they've got to be there. Where else could they be? Some people say, well, you might have tissue memory, muscle memory, etc. But it's still uh, physically located in the body. It's got to be there. How else could it possibly work? This is an assumption. There are actually alternatives. And the idea that memories are stored in the brain has been questioned by philosophers for centuries. Plotinus, in his theory of the soul, thought that memories were an aspect of the soul, not of the body, and were not stored in the brain. Henri Bergson, the great uh, French philosopher, in his book Matter and Memory, provided a persuasive argument that memories are not stored in the brain. There's another kind of causation, a causation across time, which can carry memories across time without them being stored in brains. Bertrand Russell, the uh, British philosopher, agreed with Bergson, and he proposed that there was a new kind of causation that he called monemic causation, a kind of causation that leaps across time, connecting similar things across time. Ludwig Wittgenstein came to the conclusion that memory was not stored in the brain. He was one of the most influential philosophers in the English-speaking world in the 20th century. My own view is that memory depends on a kind of resonance with the past. When you meet somebody you haven't seen for a while and you recognize them, you resonate with yourself in the past the last time you saw them. And there's a resonance across time uh, that gives you that feeling of recognition. You know you've seen them before. It's not, in the meantime, stored inside your brain. There isn't a kind of copy of their face somewhere embedded in your nervous system. Well, what about the evidence? For a hundred years, people have been trying to find the putative memory traces inside brains. In the 1950s, there was a determined attempt to find these by Carl Lashley here in the United States, who trained rats and monkeys to learn a wide variety of tricks. Once they'd learned the trick, he cut out bits of their brain to find out where the memories were stored. 
And to his surprise, he found that he could cut out large amounts of the brain. It didn't matter which amount, right, left, front, back, upper, lower. He could cut out large chunks of the brain uh, without destroying the memory. He came to the conclusion that memory seemed to be both everywhere and nowhere in particular. It couldn't be localized. His student, Carl Pribram, uh, took this idea further with his idea of the holographic storage of memories, that they're stored like a hologram over large regions of the brain. Since then, there have been further determined efforts to find memories, either in modified nerve endings, in phosphorylated proteins, or in other molecular mechanisms. Over and over again, they've drawn a blank. We know that when memories are laid down, there's activity in certain regions of the brain, particularly the hippocampus. And when the uh, memories are retrieved, there's activity in the brain that can be detected by brain scans. But in between, they just seem to disappear. Now, does this make people think, are they really there? No. They just say, we haven't found out where they are yet. We need a few billion more dollars, and we'll have another determined attempt to find them. But you see, the reason that they can't find them may be very simple. They may not be there. It may be rather like coming to your house and trying to find what programs you watched last night on television. Can I find out by analyzing the transistors and wires in your TV set? No, I can't, uh, because it doesn't leave a trace in the TV set. That's not how TV works. It tunes in. It doesn't store. It's not a video recorder. It's, it's a receiver. I think our brains are much more like receivers than recording devices. And of course, if you damage a receiver, you can damage the ability to retrieve memory. If I came and damaged the sound circuit of your TV set, I could make your TV set aphasic. It could, wouldn't speak. Um, but that wouldn't prove that all the sounds that come out of the TV set are originating inside that bit of the TV set or that they're stored there. Similarly, brain damage through injury, stroke, or degenerative diseases like Alzheimer's doesn't prove, uh, if the memory's lost, that the memory's stored in the damaged or uh, uh, decaying tissue. It merely shows that this is affecting the ability to retrieve the memory. So it turns out that memory storage in the brain is an extremely open question. Morphic resonance depends on similarity. We're all similar to lots of people in the past, especially members of our own family. And it would explain what Jung called the collective unconscious, a collective memory on which we all draw. And I'm not saying I'm definitely right about this, and so is Bergs and Bertrand Russell and Ludwig Wittgenstein and Plotinus. Uh, I'm saying that there's a long tradition of looking at memory in a different way, and the evidence favors this alternative way, and yet 100% of research on memory paid for by NIH and other funding bodies to the tune of billions of dollars a year is based on the unquestioned assumption it's got to be in the brain. There's no other alternative that you can discuss within that framework of thought. Any discussion that's not in the brain is taboo. Then we come to the assumption that the mind is in the brain, the mind is the brain. Mental activity is brain activity. Uh, this says that everything you experience is somehow inside your head. But is it? We've all been brought up with that assumption. It's something that ordinary people, even in ordinary conversation, say. If they say it's in my mind, they often say it's in my head. It's an assumption that runs through our entire civilization and which we're now busy spreading to the rest of the world through modern scientific education. So, is it true? Well, I think if you think about vision just as a starting point, it's fairly easy to see that when you think about it, it just collapses. 
as an assumption. We all know the scientific explanation. Lights reflected from me travels through the electromagnetic field, enters your eyes, inverted images on your retinas, changes in the cone cells, impulses up the optic nerve, and activity in different regions of the brain, the optical cortex and elsewhere. So far, so good. But is that an explanation of vision? No, it's just a description of the changes that happen in your nervous system and in your eyes. How does that explain the conscious experience of seeing? Well, the answer to that is it doesn't. That none of this explains consciousness at all, which is why the mere existence of consciousness is called the hard problem by philosophers of mind. So then, what might be going on? Well, where are these images located? The usual assumption is that your nervous system mysteriously generates a virtual reality display in full color and 3D inside your head, and that's what you're experiencing. That means that when you see me standing here now, there's a little Rupert somewhere inside your head. <laughs> that, believe it or not, is the official view taken to its logical extreme. The view I'm putting forward, by contrast, is so simple that it's hard to grasp. I'm suggesting your image of me is in your mind but not inside your brain. Vision involves an inward movement of light and an outward projection of images that everything you see in the world around you is projected out. Your mind extends far beyond your brain. Most children under the age of 10 believe that the eye projects out images. Jean Piaget, the developmental psychologist, uh, found that under the age of 10, most European children believe that vision involves an outward projection as well as an inward movement of light. However, Piaget said, rather pleased with himself, that by the age of 10 or 11, the average child learns the correct view, which is that thoughts and images are invisible things located inside the head. Now, most of us have taken that on trust, but no one's ever seen a thought or an image inside a head. All they've seen is electrical changes in brain activity. So, is this just a philosophical question, or can it be tested? Now, as some of you already know, uh, this is something I've devoted some time to, because if your mind reaches out to touch what you're looking at, you should be able to affect what you're looking at just by looking at it. We're listening to Dr. Rupert Sheldrake introducing his book, Science Set Free. If you'd like more information about Dr. Sheldrake, his work, and his books, you can find it at www.sheldrake.org. That's S-H-E-L-D-R-A-K-E dot org. Or you can get there via the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Dan Drayson, and you're listening to New Dimensions.
Once again, here's Dr. Rupert Sheldrake introducing his book, Science Set Free. Most people have had the feeling of being stared at and have felt when people are looking at them from behind. If you look at them from behind, through a window, they can't hear you, they can't smell you, they can't see you, they don't know you're there by any other means. Can they feel your gaze? I've done lots of experiments. These experiments uh, have given consistent, repeatable results. People can tell above chance when they're being stared at. This experiment's also been running in the Amsterdam Science Museum, the NEMO Center, for 15 years now. Tens of thousands of people have taken part. It's one of the biggest experiments ever done. The results are overwhelmingly positive and statistically significant. This is one line of argument that I think is persuasive in showing that the mind isn't confined to the inside of the head. The same theory is taken to mean that all our sensations of our body are in our brain. If I feel a pain in my toe, the pain isn't in my toe, it's in my brain. Uh, and it's referred to my toe in a rather unexplained way. What I'm saying is that just as my image of you is where it seems to be, namely outside me and where you're sitting, if I feel a pain in my toe, that pain is in the toe. It's not inside my brain. The brain may play a part, it does play a part in the sensation of pain and registering it, but the sensation is not in the brain. The brain just doesn't do that. It's not what it's doing. It's working in some quite different way. Just as people have tried to cram all hereditary information into the genes, I think a lot of it's conveyed by morphic resonance. I've only dealt with uh, three of the dogmas this evening, and only with part of them at that. But this just gives you a flavour. And when you look at these dogmas in a critical scientific way, it turns out that as hypotheses, they're not supported by the evidence. Better hypotheses are possible. This doesn't mean that the whole of science collapses and Western civilization falls into ruins. It means science gets more exciting, more interesting, and we can ask new questions. Well, how might science move forward? There are two ways I think that are really important. I think the first is something that we can all play a part in. The world of professional science is full of people who've had psychic experiences, who have spiritual practices, who go to alternative practitioners and so forth. They're not all scientific fundamentalists and true believing materialists. Richard Dawkins has done us all a good favor by crystallizing those views and making them fully explicit. This is certainly a point of view Many scientists are actually not paid-up materialists who feel a deep need to believe in this worldview. They go along with it in public because not to do so would damage their career. It's a bit like communism in Russia under Brezhnev. Uh, when communism collapsed, how many were true believers in communism? A few, there were certainly some, but it wasn't a majority. And I think that's true in science today. Another factor that's important here is that the demographics of science are changing dramatically. The majority of young scientists today are not from white, European and American backgrounds, and they have no reason to believe in this inherited baggage of the materialist worldview which has come to us through the European history of science. They do so at work or pretend to do so because they know it would damage their career not to. I think one of the things that would change science most is if scientists felt the ability to come out to their colleagues and talk about what they really experience and what they're really interested in. This occurred to me most forcefully when I gave a seminar in Cambridge 
on some of my work on dogs that know when their owners are coming home. There were six scientists in this small seminar. They were all interested in the results. They talked about it politely. They were very non-committal in the official question period. They asked about the statistics, the methodology, and so on. But afterwards, one by one, they came up and uh, they said to me, you know, I've always been interested in this kind of thing. It's one reason I went into this in the first place. And another would come up, look around during the tea break. No one, if no one was listening, he said, you know, I've got a dog that does this right now. You know, when I go home from the lab, it's waiting for me at the door. Uh, when all six had told me they thought this was happening, and when all six had said the same thing to me, but I can't talk about it to my colleagues because they're all so straight, uh, I said to them, why don't you guys come out? You'd have so much more fun. And I think this is the way forward within the sciences. I think there's so many people there who have spiritual interests, uh, psychic experiences and so forth, that don't or can't talk about them to their colleagues. If they do so, uh, they'll find that many of their colleagues share these interests. And the, the conversation in the laboratory tea room uh, would become so much more interesting uh, than it is at present. And these kinds of bigger questions I'm talking about would become part of the scientific debate rather than being marginalized and kept in taboo uh, areas where if scientists talk about them at all, they do it with their colleagues after a few glasses of wine with trusted friends in the evenings. Since I've been out for decades, scientists feel quite free to talk to me. I've been having a series of clandestine meetings uh, <laughs> with eminent scientists and for good reasons, they, they explain to me why they can't let their colleagues know what their true views are. And for one or two, the price is very heavy. They'll lose their grants, they won't get their papers published in high citation peer review journals, they won't get tenure or promotion. But if enough people do it, it would be like gays and the gay liberation movement. Uh, it would be empowering, mutually empowering. And it would just make science so much more fun and much more attractive to young people. Right now, it really puts off a lot of bright young people because they see it as a, just a load of dry facts you've got to learn. If they were aware that lots of questions are truly open, I think it would be a very different situation. Well, I think that's enough to give you a flavor of this book and I'd be happy to answer any questions. I am a science major and I was completely disillusioned with the way it was taught and the way it is founded. And you taught us that science, when it moved away during the time of the Enlightenment, away from the church, has become even more dogmatic, perhaps, or equally dogmatic as the church. My question to you is, can we use certain positive aspects of science, such as the empirical methods of research? Can we try to impose rationality on the paranormal? Well, first of all, I think we can investigate a lot of things rationally and scientifically that science doesn't at present investigate because of these taboos. I'm all in favor of reason and science as long as they're reasonable and scientific. And um, I think that uh, if we take a scientific and reasonable look at phenomena like telepathy, um, it turns out that they're not paranormal in the sense of beyond the normal, they're normal. Animals have them. They seem to be a normal means of communication among members of animal groups. Many dogs and cats and parrots and horses show uh, telepathic responses to their human owners. In the human realm, telepathy is common. Uh, more than 80% of people have had uh, telepathic experiences in relation to phone calls. So, first of all, 
I would say that whole realms of stuff that are at present classified as paranormal are normal and perfectly investigatable using standard scientific methods and statistics. That's a lot of what I do myself. I'm pro-science, not anti-science, and my book is pro-science, not anti-science. So I think there's a large range of phenomena that science has arbitrarily excluded on the grounds of dogmatic narrowness that an expanded science could include in a larger paradigm, a larger model of reality. I think, however, there are certain things which perhaps can't ever be brought within a scientific purview of predictability, and one of them is the creative impulse itself. Creativity seems to be inherent in the whole cosmos at every level, chemical, uh, molecular, biological, mental, social. The whole universe in evolution is an interplay, in my view, between habit and creativity. Habits lead to repetitions and the regularities of nature, which are very important, and without them we wouldn't be here. But the creativity, when new things happen, uh, it's literally unpredictable. If you could predict the next creative breakthrough in any subject, you would have made that breakthrough. You can't predict creativity, and I think that's because there's an element of freedom in the whole evolutionary process, a creative freedom which works through evolution, which can't be pinned down by science. How do you think about the public education of science, especially in a country like America, where there's a large sector of the population that's actively denying many what would seem to be scientific facts? Well, there is no country like America. Um, and um, this sort of anti-science movement, creationist movement, hardly exists in Europe or in most other parts of the world. It's a peculiarly American phenomenon. The reason the book's title is different in America is because the American publishers thought that the science delusion would be mistaken in America as being a creationist tract and climate change denial and so on, which it's not. Uh, so Science Set Free actually better expresses what the book's about. I think most people are quite capable of understanding there can be uncertainties. There's uncertainties in everything about the weather, the economic prospects, you know, one's health. Uh, everything's uncertain. Science has created an illusion of certainty, uh, which I think has done a great deal of harm, and it's one of the reasons that we have the science delusion. So my own approach is to show that science can in fact investigate things that people haven't looked at before. For example, my research on dogs that know when their owners are coming home. Most people on the right or the left um, are really interested in, does my dog really know when I'm coming home? Uh, and uh, this isn't a political issue, it's a scientific one. And, and, you know, some people say, well, it's just routine, or they smell you, and then you can do experiments to find out, is it just routine, can they just be smelly? And when I've talked about these things in popular newspapers and on popular television channels, I find most people are truly curious. It doesn't arouse dogmatic responses, and people feel this is the kind of thing science should be doing. I think it is the kind of thing science should be doing. On New Dimensions today, we've been listening to Dr. Rupert Sheldrake introducing his book, Science Set Free. If you'd like more information about Dr. Sheldrake, his work, and his books, you can find it at www.sheldrake.org. That's S-H-E-L-D-R-A-K-E dot org. Or you can get there via the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Dan Drayson. You've been listening to 
New Dimensions. This is program number 3476. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.